Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is Nerdette. We're here to make sure you're ready for an excellent weekend. Think of this as another introvert's guide to the good life. This week, we're going to talk about the future of 3D printing, why you should throw a dinner party right now, and y'all grammar nerds are going to be real pissed, but we've got a great interview about how the internet is changing the rules of language, and that's actually a good thing. LMAO! All right, let's get started. So this week was a really big week for prizes. The Nobels were awarded. I took some homemade Pop-Tarts out of the freezer and blew some friends' minds. And in the literary world, the Booker Prize winners were announced. The Booker is a super prestigious prize for fiction, and it usually only just goes to one book each year. But this year we have two winners, Bernadine Evaristo won for Girl, Woman, Other, and Margaret Atwood won for The Testaments. That means they're going to split the $63,000 prize. Prize chairman Peter Florence said both of the winning books, quote, address the world today and give us insights into it and create characters that resonate with us. He also said they were wonderfully compelling page-turning thrillers. I read The Testaments. We actually did a whole nerd book club on it and we had a lot of opinions and so in fact did our listeners why is everyone drinking glasses of warm milk constantly every three pages someone is offering someone else a glass of warm milk but we're not going to get into all that right now just check out the podcast you can look for the episodes labeled book club in super nerdy news the time has come to unveil the world's largest 3D printer. The world's largest 3D printer has created the world's largest 3D printed boat, and I am delighted. So this boat is 5,000 pounds. It's 25 feet long. It kind of looks like something you'd go fishing off of, and it was made at the University of Maine. Here with us from the university's Advanced Structures and Composite Center is Executive Director Habib Dogger. Hey, Habib. Hi, Greta. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you. So what was the process like for actually printing this? Like, what does it take? How long does it take? What's the deal? We've been working on this printer for three years, and and we've been actually assembling it since last summer. And we got to the point about a month ago where we're ready to go ahead and fire it up. And and the question to our team was, what do we print first? And uh, we could go out and print something really small, and or that would be kind of anticlimactic, or we can build something really big and see where the glass ceiling is. And we decided to print this boat. So go big or go home, essentially. Exactly. And and it was uh, around the clock. We had a night shift. We have a day shift and, and, and a lot of pizza deliveries, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How many pizzas did you go through? Do you know? <laughs> Let's say we had 5,000 5, pounds of composites printed 
and, and at least 25 pounds of pizza. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously this has a lot of implications for boat building specifically, but what do you think is the future of 3D printing in general? Like, why is this important? What it does, it speeds up innovation in a way that's never happened in the past. How do you actually build your first prototype? If, you have, if, you have, if you're a designer, you have an idea, you want to build your first prototype, it might take you a year before you see your first prototype. With a technology like this, uh, you know, you can have your first prototype within weeks or less. And being able to uh, look at two or three designs in a, in a short period of time because you can print the holes and test them and pick what you like better, better is can also reduce the cost of innovation and the speed of innovation. That's very cool. Is there something in your mind that's sort of like pie in the sky, ridiculous, amazing? Like, you know, are you going to are you all going to print a Ferris wheel or something out there? <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of really crazy things we're thinking about printing, including people want us to print homes. That can be oh, actually, sure. Really, can you really do that? Can you do it cost-effectively? That's, these are very important questions. Can we use bio-based materials and print with materials such as corn-based resins and wood-based fibers and, and then have something that's 100% recyclable? You can build a house and, and then 50 years from now, when somebody tears it down, you can recycle the whole thing. That's amazing. That's the kind of things that we're, we're thinking about going into the future. Well, congratulations. Habib, thank you so much for talking with us. It's a pleasure, Greta. Next time we have the next crazy thing printed, we'll give you a call. Yes. I can't wait to see what they're going to print next. Maybe it'll be an entire carnival. What do you think? Wouldn't that be actually terrifying? (laughs) Up next, Allison Roman is a food columnist for both New York Times Cooking and Bon Appetit, which are two of my favorite corners of the food internet. She's actually created two recipes that went totally viral. They're known as just the cookie and the stew. The cookie is a salted chocolate chunk shortbread cookie, which is delicious. And the stew is like a turmeric chickpea coconut milk situation. Google them both. They are goddamn delicious. Anyway, her new cookbook is called Nothing Fancy, and it comes out on Tuesday. And it's all about how to throw like a low-key badass dinner party. But Allison actually doesn't even believe in the term dinner party. She prefers to say she's having a few people over. Having a few people over. That song is from the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and Allison has three really great guidelines for when you want to have a few people over. And the first one is ask for help. Yes. So I feel like that is probably the one that I struggle with most because I really wanted to do everything myself. I wanted to, you know, be able to provide for everybody. I wanted to at least have the illusion that I was in control of the situation. And so as soon as you kind of acknowledge the fact that, you know, you're probably going to have better luck if you ask for help giving yourself permission to do that. And then you're going to feel a lot better. It's also, I think it's nice to include people in the process, you know, otherwise it's like you, you, they come over and you're essentially serving them. And it has like this dynamic of like host and guest and whatever. But I feel like when you invite people over and you ask them to contribute or pitch in or help, even if it's a small task, like picking herbs or something, there's like a community vibe that, that comes out from that, which I think is really nice. Her second party tip is pick your battles. Pick your battles, yeah. So this one is more to do for me with, like, menu design and, you know, the cocktail you were going to serve, but, you know, it feels weird or tastes funny or the fourth dish you were going to make. It's like, is that is three enough? Maybe three is enough type of thing. And <laughs> yeah. if you're going to go all out on this, like, crazy 
roast or something like that. Maybe everything else is really simple. Maybe it's done just some baked potatoes and a salad. Like you don't have to be so elaborate. And I think that the battle should be like just understanding that when you open your home to people and fill it with people and, and eat and then there's the cleanup and you're drinking wine, like that takes a lot out of you, especially as, as you get older, as I've learned um, now that I'm 34. But, you know, so it's sort of like, you know what, I was gonna, I was gonna do this, but now I'm not. I was gonna make, you know, the other day I was gonna make these little crispy mashed potatoes, like mashed potato and then fry them in oil and like get them all crispy. Mm, I was like, you know what, I'm not gonna do that. I, I was already stressed out about something else. I was running out of time. And the fact that I opted out of that made the rest of my night so much smoother. And the third is never apologize. Yeah, I mean, this is like a real definite riff off of Julia Child-ism uh, <laughs> where, you know, basically the gist is like, if you apologize, nobody is going to notice the way that you're going to notice. And don't apologize for, for you know, the thing not coming out the way that you thought it would because nobody knows the difference. And I think that most home cooks and a lot of cookbook authors especially feel this way. You know, there's like the Julia Tertian who wrote Small Victories mm-hmm. and now and, now and again in her first book, she had like a funny story about how she was supposed to make ice cream and it didn't set and it didn't work. So she served it as milkshakes and everybody loved it. And she didn't tell anybody that it was supposed to be ice cream. So I feel like it's that kind of thing. And I think women especially are really, we have an, a, a love for the word, I'm sorry. And we apologize for everything mm-hmm. um, in the kitchen and out of the kitchen on the street at home, whatever. But I feel like, you know, if your chicken doesn't get as brown as you thought it would, or if you feel like your salad was a little too salty or whatever, just, don't even bring it up. Don't apologize and just go with it because things are never going to be perfect. They're never going to be exactly how you want it to be. And chances are people are going to really appreciate the gesture anyway. I don't know about you, but like ask for help, pick your battles and never apologize. I think are like also pretty good advice outside the kitchen too. Just saying. So with that in mind, throw yourself a goddamn party. I'm going to throw a biscuit party this weekend. It's going to be great. In just a minute, a very special message for y'all grammar nerds. The world will be just fine if we let complete apostrophe chaos reign. (laughs) You're listening to Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. If you love grammar rules, well, we have what could be a very upsetting, but I think hopefully eventually empowering interview for you. Are you feeling nauseous or is it nauseated? Sorry, we had to do that. So the source of your upcoming frustration is Gretchen McCulloch. She's an internet linguist and she's the author of a great book called Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language. It's all about how the internet and tech are changing language faster than ever before. 
And what Gretchen argues essentially is that for most of human history, the way we learned language, the way language was spread was through like official fancy things, right? Like think textbooks or books, like anything that's published, right? But now we have the internet and all of a sudden there's like blogs and Twitter and all this stuff where normal people are just writing, which means they're less formal and they're more creative. And gasp, that means they're following less grammar rules. I did say less just to piss you guys off. (laughs) When we think of rules, we often think of these sort of top-down things that are imposed on us from on high. And that's not the kind of thing that I'm excited about. I'm excited about the emergent patterns that happen when you look at what people are already doing, not what they think they should be doing, but what we're already doing and how we respond to each other and organize with respect to each other. Uh, And it turns out that we do a lot of really interesting things. And one of those interesting things is new words. We tend to have this sort of weird view of the history versus the present. You know, we look back at Shakespeare or something and we say, wow, Shakespeare added so many words to English. That may be kind of a myth, but regardless, we say this Mm -hmm. as like, great, good for Shakespeare. And then with the same breath, we say, look at these, you know, young girls or look at these, um, you know, economically marginalized youths who are adding Mm -hmm. new words to English. We don't like them, though. Right. You know? And yeah. like, if you're going to celebrate Shakespeare, you need to celebrate like young African-American girls or young queer youth or like all of these young people who are currently adding words to the English language. If you're going to celebrate Shakespeare for this, you need to acknowledge that like the youths are the new Shakespeare. <laughs> I love it so much. I mean, it reminds me of something I've heard you say before that kind of blew my mind, especially as a word nerd, which is that we should actually be celebrating all of these changes as much as possible instead of holding on to say, you know, whether it should be fewer or lesser than like, there are so many more interesting conversations that we can be having around this stuff. And in a lot of ways, when you're upholding the rules, you're keeping certain kinds of people out of the conversation. Exactly. I think it's not an accident that the varieties that we associate with you know, fanciness or prestige are also associated with people who already have the most economic and social power. Mm-hmm. And the ones that we think of as bad or improper or incorrect are associated with people in society who we have similar attitudes towards. And mm-hmm. it's not about the words. Like, language is great. There are many things to worry about in this society that are not language change. Language change is fine. <laughs> It's fun for things to change. You don't have to adopt personally every single new word that crosses your radar. But, like, new words are cool. New words are always happening. Language has always changed. And having negative attitudes towards language change is often more of a reflection of negative attitudes associated with particular groups of speakers. Um, And that's something you know, to kind of question in your mind. So perhaps unsurprisingly, so I'm also a a news anchor here at WBEZ, which means I read newscasts. And Mm -hmm. as maybe you can imagine, we get a lot of listener feedback about especially grammar things. Mm -hmm. What's what's your advice to somebody who does just like spin out about an apostrophe or whatever? I think that my life has gotten so much better since I realized I didn't have to be angry about language. You know, you can have this relaxed and curious and interested attitude and literally almost lower your blood pressure. You know, (laughs) you don't need to be annoyed. 
the the change is within you and you can just decide to not be annoyed and then suddenly the world has just gotten less annoying for you this is this is tremendously freeing to realize that the world will be just fine if you give up your grammar vigilantism put that energy into figuring out ways to connect better with people figuring out how to use language more compassionately imagine if you put all of that energy from correcting people's apostrophes and put that into looking at the words you use and saying, are any of these actually slurs and I didn't realize it and maybe I don't want to say those because I don't want to put up that barrier between me and other people? Mm -hmm. Not using the correct apostrophe is not hurting anybody in the same sort of way that using a slur that you didn't realize was a slur is hurting a real person. You don't need to use that energy because the world will be just fine if... We let complete apostrophe chaos reign. <laughs> oh my god, complete apostrophe chaos. I just love it so much. Gretchen McCulloch, author of Because Internet, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, nerds, just think of that as like your homework. Just let it go. Pick better fights. Make better mistakes. And one more thing. On this day, in 1922, the British Broadcasting Service was founded. Obviously, even now, it is a titan of broadcast news. But what I think of when I think of my favorite thing about the BBC beyond, like, you know, Doctor Who or Torchwood is this clip of a normally completely straight-laced, you know, like, fancy British newscaster totally losing her shit on live radio. American historians have discovered what they think is the earliest recording of the human voice. It was made in 1860, 17 years before Thomas Edison first demonstrated the gramophone. The, the award-winning screenwriter Abby Mann has died at the age of 80. He won an Academy Award in 1961 for Judgment at Nuremberg. Abby, excuse me, sorry. Abby Mann also won several Emmys, including, including one in 1973 for a, for a film which featured a police, a police detective called the character on whom a long-running TV series was eventually based. Ten minutes past eight. <laughs> oh my god, I'm crying. I'm actually crying. It's so funny every time. I think especially as someone who like actually reads the news live sometimes here at WBEC. That is an absolute nightmare, but it is also so funny. I think what happened is that like she you know, she's like listening to this super harsh recording and then she looks over at her co-presenter and he's losing his shit and then she just loses it too and it is like the worst timing ever, but it's amazing. It actually reminds me, I mean, I do a lot of live radio. I've made a great many mistakes once I said highs in the upper Thursdays, but this is by far the moment that I am most ashamed and proudest of at the same time. WBEZ is supported by bras galore with a wide variety and selection of bras and band sizes 28 through 56 and cup sizes AA through N. Bras galore feeds petite to full figure to full busted at 3148 North Lincoln in Chicago. 
browsegalore.com. 63 degrees. Uh, feet's petite, man. I mean, you can hear me crack up like almost, but I'm very proud of the fact that I maintained my composure because sometimes you accidentally say tit on the radio and it's a thing that happens. And then, of course, you have to pull a recording of it and email it to your mother immediately. The show is produced by me, Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull. Our co-creator is Trisha Bobita, and our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. Nerdette is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. We've got a newsletter. It has a bunch of great stuff in it. You can sign up at our website, wbez.org slash nerdetteaf. See you soon, nerds. And hey, come back November 1st for this. Well, George R.R. Martin, thank you so much for chatting with me. It was really a pleasure talking with you. Oh, my pleasure. It's fun. Winter is coming, motherfuckers. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.